Welcome to Down in Bloomington, a conversational podcast about the rich musical history of Bloomington, Indiana. I'm really excited about today's guest. If you've listened to my past episodes, you know that I've spoken with both Bill Cameron and Jim Robinson of the band Brown Betty. Well, today I had the opportunity to have a thrilling and hilarious conversation with Tom Shover. Tom Shover was the drummer for Brown Betty, but he is also known in Bloomington as the lead singer and guitar player for Steve Kowalski's Army, Steve Kowalski Incorporated, the Men of the SK, and several other monikers that were used to describe this amazing band. Tom is an amazing storyteller. He spent greater than an hour telling me stories about not only his experience with Steve Kowalski's Army, etc., but also about playing in Bloomington, playing around the country, even playing internationally. It was an amazing conversation. It even led into Brown Betty and the uh, demise of Steve Kowalski's Army, the rise of Brown Betty, the experience that he had with them. We seriously could have continued talking for hours. Heck, there may be more episodes where he comes back to tell stories. I could listen to him talk. I can listen to the way that he tells stories. But anyway, I want to get into it. But before that, we're going to play a little bit of Steve Kowalski's Army. I'm 
podcast give me the the uh your version of the history of uh steve kowalski okay because uh because there's a few different phases with the steve kowalski thing but um i had been in the band uh the flies down in bloomington and we recorded an ep uh so i i had you know had a vinyl release and um and later after that um I, you know, we were getting this band together and it was more of a project with uh, just two people. It was just me and Rob Rowe. Um, Rob played bass and I played drums, sang and played guitar. And um, and it was just it was just a project kind of thing. And um, Rob is into uh, into like industrial stuff, but. Um, but we also liked a lot of the, you know, the same stuff like Echo and the Bunny Men and uh, Joy Division and The Clash and everything. And um, and so when we were putting the band together, um, I had been in a bunch of bands. I don't know if Rob had been in any, but um, we were um, we were making fun of the Bloomington um, music scene had a bunch of bands with really complicated names like nuns on skates and dreams of reason. And, uh, you know, Kisten skeletons who I, I loved, but, um, you know, these weird, you know, arson garden and, and all these. And I saw something in the paper where they were talking about how they had, these people had come up with their pipples on crack and all these, um, that they'd come up with these their name by putting all their lyrics on a wall and throwing three darts at it and all this. And I was like, God, that is so much nonsense because band names take on coolness because of how cool the band is. The name doesn't mean anything. And I was like, you know, it, what's an Aerosmith? What's a Fleetwood Mac? You know, what's a <laughs> ACDC is like an insult, you know, it's not even, you know, um, and so, but then the band makes that foreigner, you know, or they, the band makes it cool. And then you don't think about it. You just think, you know, your head just gets filled with, with, uh, you know, what the band is. You don't care the band name. So I was like, we should have, first it was going to be a barcode. You know, we were, the band was just going to be like a serial number. Um, and then we thought, well, if we have a barcode, you know, this was like 20 years before Prince uh, became a symbol. But I was like, they're never going to be able to put a barcode, uh, you know, onto like a marquee or anything. So at least it would have to be a series of numbers. Um, and so we were like, we'll just grab the first barcode we have and 
whatever numbers are at the bottom of the barcode, we'll make that be the band name. It'll be like 16 digits or something. Cause it, cause it doesn't mean anything. We'll make it cool, you know? Yeah. But then that idea sort of went away. And Steve Kowalski is a friend of mine. I'm still friends with him. He, uh, he's uh, lived, lived across the street from me uh, here in Michigan city, Indiana. And, um, and I used to always say stuff about Steve Kowalski. I would throw his name in, you know, in songs and, you know, like in The Who, Stevie Kowalski, tough guy, Henri, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so then we decided, let, let's just make it Steve Kowalski, you know. But we were, but, uh, we were into Fetus, which, um, you know, because Rob Rowe was into industrial music, and Fetus had millions of different incantations of his band's name. So yeah. Fetus, you know, Jim Fetus was one of his names. Um, and um, he, uh, but he had Fetus Uber Frisco and Scraping Fetus Off the Wheel and You've Got Fetus on Your Breath and, you know, all these different Fetus monikers. So that was where we came up with the millions of different versions of the Steve Kowalski thing. So we had Steve Kowalski's Army was popular. That was one of the first ones. Although people thought it meant we were a ska band because of the letters. I didn't, I'm not that clever. I would have never done that. Um, but, um, you know, then we had, you know, just the K, we had the men of the SK, we had just SK, Steve Kowalski mod division. So it was Steve Kowalski MD, not a medical doctor, but the mod division version of, of the band. Um, Steve Kowalski Inc., which was like a takeoff on Public Image Limited. Um, so we had tons of those. But after the Steve, um, after we made a, like a record of originals, but but it was just a tape. You know, we hadn't pressed it up or anything. Um, we saw uh, we saw some huge article about Arson Garden in in the newspaper full page like two pages the whole spread out millions of photos and this big huge i was like jesus mary and joseph um <laughs> i was like wow you know and it was like one of the lines in it there was a couple because i used them in some of our songs um was one was soon to be a household name april combs or whatever i was yeah. like wow okay that's impressive and then another one was something about her haunting voice. And uh, so Steve Kowalski had a song called The Haunting Voice. Um, so we ended up just being uh, um, out there to combat Arson Garden, you know, like um, that was. And so but we didn't have a drummer. I was I was playing, you know, on the recordings. I did everything other than the bass. And um, then we uh, we were bitching about you know, wanting to, you know, get somebody to play and um, at a restaurant and the girl in, in Bloomington and the girl that was waiting on us was like, if you need a drummer, my boyfriend's a drummer. That That's pretty random. That's as random as it comes. And so we grabbed that guy. Um, he was the American juggler. He was an amazing juggler. Um, Tim Bolter, I think his name was. Um, and he was not really, you know, didn't really fit in with us. He did have like a tie-dye thing. We were very anti-hippie. 
because we lived at Collins and um, and we were that wasn't really our thing. Like if you had a Birkenstock on, you could ask Jim. Uh, Jim uh, Robinson was going to play bass with Steve Kowalski after Jake left, and he came to the audition with Birkenstocks on, and I said, "We can't play with you." He he te- he tells that story in the interview that I did with. That him. is hilarious. That's a true story. That's a true story. <laughs> I can't, I can't get over that. I mean, that's, there's nowhere to go from there. You know? uh, so, um, <laughs> but so, so we played with Tim Bolter for a while and it was really fun because it was like we were a cover band of our own stuff because we already had this, this record that we had made um, and it had been sitting around for a while, but now we were having to do it live and teaching it to the drummer and everything. And um, it was a lot of fun, but we got going. But Tim Bolter wasn't, wasn't that great of a musician or anything. And uh, getting Pat Spurgeon in was always uh, the ultimate goal. Uh, Pat and I go back uh, all the way when he was in high school, you know. So um, I've lived with him a bunch of times and slept in the same bedroom and yeah, so we we're pretty tight, but um, we finally got him down, um, and it was crazy great um, when you get somebody that good. Yeah, uh, because it the 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 structure of a um, of a uh, power trio so much depends on the rhythm section. The drums and bass have to be great. Yes. I mean, that's like. Um, like Green Day or, you know, The Jam and, you know, a, a lot of those bands, there's nowhere to hide in a three-piece, you know. If, yeah. If there's, you can't have like, oh, well, the drummer's sort of okay, you know. It just, it doesn't work. And especially when you're playing aggressive stuff like we did and everything with lots of stops and timing changes and stuff. So when we got him, it was crazy, the impact of it like um night and day it was like a jet fuel and then um we went on like that for a while with me rob and pat and then um after a while we um uh, jake was friend was a like a fan of the band was uh you know would come to the parties and and stuff like that and and to a bunch of the shows I think he said he was in the Steve Kowalski road crew or something he might have helped us move some gear or whatever but um, and we knew of his band um, My Three Sons which was like a ska thing and we couldn't believe he was so young I went to his high school talent show <laughs> that's he, how, how how young he was he, I got on I got on stage at his high school talent show um, that's hilarious. It, yeah, it was amazing. But the guy's just so incredibly talented. He's way better on guitar than I am. Um, he's the best bass player who's ever touched a bass. I mean, it's unreal. I um, agree. He can sing great. He's amazing on stage. He writes so much music. It's ridiculous. So intimidating. I mean, it'd be like, oh, yeah, I wrote seven songs this weekend. And he'd play them. For, they're all great. You know, yeah. it's like. None of them are throwaways. None of them are instrumentals. I mean, it's like, what? It's like he wrote an album over the weekend or something. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So, so good. But we, 
so I had, like I said, we had seen him in uh, My Three Sons, but that was more of a ska kind of thing. So it wasn't really um, compatible with us. And we knew him, you know, he was a, you know, a friend of ours and everything. And then I think I saw him with the Nids, that band, and they were covering like the real me or whatever and, uh, by the who and he's jumping around and doing it like note for note and i was like god dang this guy is insane on yeah. bass and everybody you know all of our friends were like you should get him in your band you got you got to get him in your band it would be ridiculous and uh and we had already made a mega jump by by getting pat in we'd gone through that like wormhole and then when we got jake in it was in the summer, so school down Dayu was pretty shut down. But we were doing um, a few songs every like Monday night at Jake's. They had like a blues, some horrible blues jam thing. Um, I mean, nothing's worse <laughs> on the planet. Um, but anyway, they, they let us get up and on their stuff and do a few songs, and we would do. You know, like the first few songs of our set um, each Monday at this thing. And it was just rip roaring. It, again, it was like going through another wormhole because because Rob Rowe was a really good bass player. R amazing timing, but he didn't sing. He didn't write, you know, songs yeah. or anything like that. And he didn't, you know, he didn't jump around, you know, the way that Jake does. But it, I couldn't believe how good it was. Even from the first rehearsal, the guy knew every song of ours. Um, you know, I mean, there was no time, there was no lag time. He knew every cover we did. Um, it was unreal. After the first practice, I've got a tape of it, um, of 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 the you know some of the songs and everything, and it sounds as good as any record we ever did. You know, I mean, it's like. It's ridiculous how good he is. He, so he, he was amazing. And I remember like the first time I saw him play with you all, I was just like, fuck, there's no reason to even try to play. Exactly. He, he's like when when Eddie Van Halen came out, because I was <laughs> I was around then. And before Eddie Van Halen came out, people like in Kiss or in Judas Priest and stuff, they thought they could play guitar. Right. They thought they were playing the same <laughs> instrument as Eddie Van Halen. And then when Van Halen came out, everybody was like, oh, my God, we yeah. can't play at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We can't play anything. You know, it's like yeah, he, he was so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Van Halen was. I mean, it yeah. was like the, it was a huge mega jump and not just not just fret tapping or whatever mm -hmm. fret tapping was sort of like Michael Jackson's uh, moonwalk. There's right. other people who moonwalk. There's other people who fret tap or whatever. Yeah. But it was the, the way he played the, the parts, the melodic guitar leads. You could mouth a guitar lead of Eddie Van Halen's right now, note for note. Yeah. You could do it. Yeah. You could, I could say, hey, this song, and you'd be like, you know, that's how good those leads are. They're not just random, like, shredding and... Um, and that kind of junk. Right. It's it's they're melodic. They're they fit the songs great. Yeah. But that that's the way. Yeah, J Jake was stunning. I mean, when I went to when we moved up to Indianapolis, I was like, you know, I was telling those people, I was like, you're not going to believe it. You're just not going to believe it. Yeah, I mean, the, the right. guy does stuff 
We covered um, Lipstick Vogue by Elvis Costello. It's on YouTube. And it was at a it was at a, a pub in Canada in um, London, I, Ontario. I, I've watched the video several times. Oh my through, god. Throughout my life, yeah. The bass work on that. I mean, they ought to play it in school or something. It's wrong. I mean, a guy, I'd look over there, I'd be playing, and it'd be hard. You'd like look over and be like, oh my god. <laughs> right. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah, yeah, stunning, stunning player. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you know, I'd be working on some song or whatever, and he'd be like, "Oh, you know, go go to here, you know, do a minor here or whatever." You know, I'm like, <laughs> "Oh my god, it's perfect." You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, he's wrong. Jake's Jake's fucking wrong. Yeah, but I uh, also I also remember he he played this um, Fender yes. bass that was uh, like so weird looking let me lay it on you let me lay it on you yeah. because we're not on video but right. i have the guitar of that right here oh i've been looking for one of those bases you'll, you'll never find them they're thousands and thousands of dollars but i know it's called a fender performer it's made i think it was in the early 80s mm -hmm. they are so heavily sought after the bass has a two octave neck if you can believe it yeah 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 and the guitar does too um, I, and I was on uh, doing some sh shows with Betty, and we were in New York, and I went to the famous um, street where all those music stores are, mm -hmm. and I'm the the name of the record, the guitar store is escaping me right now, but it was super famous. And when I was with Betty, I still was writing songs and play, you know playing guitar, but we mm -hmm. weren't using my songs. Um, and so when we were gone, you know, I was like, I wanted to play guitar, but I didn't have a guitar, you know? Yeah. And um, and so I ran into there. It wasn't Sam Ash. It was a really famous one. I can't remember. And I was looking around in this and I go, oh, my God, it's the guitar version mm -hmm. of Jake's bass, a Fender performer and the exact finish. Really, that was like that greenish. Uh, yeah, gunmetal, like yeah. gunmetal green or whatever. There's there's a few different colors that they come in, but um, but yeah, and I bought it, and I hate to say it, it was less than a hundred dollars. There are oh thousands my of dollars. God, I got it um for like a hundred bucks. I bought a couple picks and a pack of strings and just played it in the van and stuff. Um just so I would have a, a, something to play with. And then later on, you know, a, a, a friend of mine who's a guitar player in Chicago was looking at my guitars and he's like, you have a Fender Performer? <laughs> he's like, you know how much those are worth? And I was I was like, don't hate me. I also have a 1966 um, Rickenbacker 330 that I paid $100 for. I actually... Um, I remember you had that. Oh, right, right. I did play it in Steve Kowalski. But you also stayed the night when I lived with Pat Spurgeon. You stayed there down in Bloomington a few times at that house. And you okay. had you had that guitar in a uh, in a case. And, oh, OK. Um, and I was OK. Like, yeah, that's a 66. Um, yeah. A, a friend of mine uh, who, who works at a, a guitar store in Chicago uh, did some work on it and and um 
and he confirmed it's a 66. So that's yeah, so cool. I know, um, but yeah, that bass, yeah. And he broke it. He smashed it in the last show. Oh my god. Oh when my we god. played in South Bend with New Duncan Imperials, it was our last show, although we ended up doing a couple shows later when we reunited or whatever, but yeah. he smashed it in that show. So I've told this story on the podcast before, but I had a I had an American uh, Fender jazz bass that I sold to Roadworthy for beer money, like oh. like pennies, and mm. and Jake ended up buying it. And oh, uh, is that where he got his jazz bass? Yeah, yeah, and it's like the the one that got away. Like I I oh. continuously regret that I got. I have that. yeah, I, I have a couple funnies like that where. Yeah. Um, we were, I don't know if you know Mumblestrom or Kisten Skeletons. That's Gabe Saavedra was the the singer. That's I old, don't. That's old Bloomington history. Okay. Um, me and Gabe go back to when I was in high school. Um, but uh, he, we, we were sitting around talking about just what you were talking about. The one that got away. Like if you could go back in time and get. Um, you know one piece of gear back you know yeah. what what would it be yeah. and um steve carr was from car amplifiers i don't know if you know that amplifier i they're, don't they're boutique amplifiers c-a-r-r they're real they're really good um he was in on that conversation too and he had a pre-cbs precision a white one uh. back in the day and he got rid of that and that was his but then gabe was said um Oh yeah, my precision, uh, my precision bass that I got Alex Chilton to sign it when the Flies played with Alex Chilton. Oh, oh my God! And um, yeah, we the Flies opened up for Alex Chilton at Second Story. Can you believe that? Oh my God! And uh, yeah, and uh, I have a really good picture of me and uh, Alex Chilton <laughs> sitting backstage because um, to prove that he signed it, you know. Yeah. And um, and he signed it really big, and I was like, well, what? Where where is that base? You got rid of that base, oh and he's like, "Oh, Kevin has it." This um, this guy that was married to my sister. And I was like, "Did he buy it?" And he's <laughs> like, "No, he just borrowed it at, like twenty years ago or whatever." And I was like, "Well, he's a relative." Yeah, I mean, I was, yeah. I, I got on the phone and called him immediately. I was like, <laughs> "Hey, do you have Gabe's base?" And he's like, "Yeah." I was like, "I'm coming over and getting it right now." I mean. It, I was like, I'm gonna remedy this one right now. But yeah, <laughs> yeah that's funny that you remember. Yeah, his uh, yeah. his Fender performer. I'd love to have a bass of it. Oh I wish God. I would have the guitar when I was in Kowalski. We'd have had matching one. Oh, that would have been so cool. God, that would have been the greatest. So when you, I, I always thought that Steve Kowalski started up in the region and then came to Indianapolis and then came to Bloomington, but you're saying it, it started in Bloomington. It did, it did. It started in Bloomington with me and Rob. We both lived in Collins. Okay. And um, like I said, we were very anti-hippie. That was in some of our songs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we were very anti-hippie. Um, you might've heard, like when you interviewed Bill Cameron, he was saying, uh, Tom challenges other bands and they yeah, put, on, yeah. put on their flyers. We would put Steve Kowalski. Um, we played with Arson Garden, you know. Yeah. We, I was just jealous of them, you know. I mean, yeah. they did everything right. I mean, they, their demo tape sounded amazing. It was professionally 
you know, the packaging was professional. They didn't have any missteps. You know, we had like tapes out that sounded like shit and, <laughs> you know, our 45 sounded like shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, um, yeah. well, you guys all got to put whatever you wanted on those 45s from Rusty Cow. Right. When that, when that concept was presented at the bands that were playing at second story or not second story at the patio yeah we're supposed to go in and do like a one-off thing on a on a tascam right and then he would press them on the 45 so we had to record on the tascam we didn't have the choice but then when they heard how shitty it sounded <laughs> uh, they were like well we're not going to make these other guys do that i mean it sounds like shit right and like so Monkey Fish and Blacklisted and everybody, all you guys got to give them whatever studio stuff you had. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but so we got sort of stung, but, we, you know, God love him, you know, um, God rest his soul, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like she just passed away. But, yeah. um, but you know, we're not going to be like, fuck you. Right, no. right. No, we want a, we want our own studio stuff on it. You know, I mean, it's like. Well, the the irony of that is like, you know, you all were probably the, in in my opinion, the best band that came out on those uh, Rusty Cow. 45. I always think that, but that's because I always think that. Well, sure, but <laughs> it sounded it sounded like shit, but. Um, yeah, it was, there was some irony in that. That, that yeah, it, it yeah, was, it, was, it was your but, record that. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of near misses like that. But yeah, no, we did start in Bloomington and, and you know, with Rob and I both lived in Collins and then we moved out of there and Pat and Rob and I all lived together in Bloomington like the monkeys um, <laughs> for a while, for a while. And um, and uh, and and then, uh, you know, we got J when we, we got Jake in and then later I moved up to Indianapolis and um you know, a lot more was going on there. Um, there were a lot of bands in Bloomington, but there weren't a lot of bands in Bloomington that were like making records and stuff, you right. know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, Arson Garden did. Um, but um, up in Indianapolis, you're bumping around with, you know, the guys from the Gizmos and, you know, um, he, uh, um, you know, and the Zero Boys, and yeah. you know, with the Suraceeds, and you know, you're bumping around with guys who like really done stuff. Yeah, Gail Lawrence from the Gizmos. I was gonna say, um, back in the day, the Hoosier Hysteria record with Dow Jones and the Industrials and the Gizmos. Yep. On on Culture Records, that was a huge Im influence, a point in in our in my life. That that and. The first uh, replacements record. Sorry, Ma forgot to take out the trash. Yeah. Um, we ordered that record through Trouser Press. We clipped out a thing and ordered it through the mail. I don't think Twin Tone even had distribution at that time. Oh wow! It was. It was. Yeah. It was really early on. But I couldn't believe when I heard um, Steve Carr went to Purdue um, from Carr Amplifiers. He played me. Um, and he still has a copy. I, I told him how much it's worth. That record's worth like $200, $300. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. To look on Discogs. Yeah. Um, but Hoosier Hysteria, he played me that. And I couldn't believe that a local band could make songs that were so good they could be hits. Yeah. You know? It's like yeah. Every I, I was more in love with, 
I mean, I love Dale Lawrence as, as a person, but I was more into Dow Jones. I thought every song of theirs on that record is unreal. Um, great, fun, amazing songs. Dale has some great songs on the Gizmo side too. But ironically, we wove in actually the drummer from Arson Garden married my sister. Um, <laughs> who didn't? You know, so many people married her in in these stories. It's just crazy. Um, but he, um, uh, yeah. So we weaved in it all um, out. We played with them. I think that was the first time. Um, it was at, uh, at Collins uh, at the at the the restaurant, like in the restaurant there. Um, and April Combs used to be a cleaning lady there. Oh my gosh. At Collins. She was a net head. She had the <laughs> hair net on and everything. Yeah. Try try to respect that person later. You know, that's tough. But uh she's she's great. Um but they um but so then we played with them there and we both covered the song Friction by television. Oh, that's and funny. It was, it was really funny because James Combs said to me before the thing, now I hated those guys. I mean, but <laughs> only because I was jealous, you know, right. it's like yeah. Yeah. they had records out um, and they had all this fawning shit. When, um, when, when they played at uh, people's park for what is that? Uh, Ultra shock. Yeah. Yeah. I met all of REM at that once. Oh, wow. Yeah. I met all, they were all there, all four of them. Um, but um, when they played, there was a big write-up on them. Um, yeah. They and and it was in the paper. And then the next year, Steve Kowalski played on the main stage, or whatever. And they had a picture of the Arson Garden watching <laughs> us. And it said, well, it said Arson Garden looks on as local talent. They didn't even mention us. I was like, <laughs> oh my god, really? You know. So, so yeah, like I, I had it in for them, yeah. and um, which will be a common thread. I mean, I've always got it in for some band or other. But <laughs> the um, that was so funny that on, when you were interviewing Bill Cameron, he's like, "Well, Tom, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but he can be a little competitive." I'm like, "What? <laughs> oh my god! I went right up to people's faces." You know, like not, not a little competitive, right? A little. I went up to guys all the time. It was like you ought to pack your shit up and go home. <laughs> You're, you 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 don't want this fight, you know? Yeah. So, but anyway, so then James, like I said, James Combs said, "Hey, we both cover Friction. You're not going to do it tonight, are you?" I'm like, "Oh God, no! Of course not. We were playing first, and so of course we played it like first, you know." <laughs> It's like of I was gonna, I was gonna do it every other song, you know, just just all night, you know. But but um, so another funny Arson Garden tumble was when we first played at the patio and everything got going for us was because Arson Garden canceled at the patio. Something happened; and they couldn't play the show, and they said, "Hey, do you guys want to play?" At, at the back, at, and Steve Kowalski, I was like, oh yeah, I'll call those guys and get them up here. And uh, we played, Dale Lawrence saw us at that show from the Gizmos and Vulgar Boatmen, who Jake plays with the Vulgar Boatmen now. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, Dale Lawrence saw us and went nuts. He loved us. Of course. And, and, when, and then after that, 
Dale told everybody, he's like, this, I, I, people came up to me all the time. I had to come see you because Dale told me how great you guys were. And Dale never says that. What a great um, endorsement. It was incredible. And then we played our first show in Chicago, opening up for that. Oh, for right the Walter Boatman. So, yeah. yeah, so we had a funny little whining in there, um, uh, you know, through the Arson Garden things. But yeah, so we we definitely did start out in in uh, in Bloomington. But then I moved up to Indianapolis and Jake and Pat were still in Bloomington. Yeah. And how long how long did that last before Steve Kowalski kind of dissolved or yeah um well I lived up there a couple years only like two years or something and um so we were going through that and then I I know I lived up in Indianapolis when Jake told me he wasn't gonna um wasn't gonna play with us anymore I've never had my heart broken before but I did that day yeah I bet. That, I, I, I've never had it, you know, not with women or anything like that. But I definitely got my heart broken that day. You know, yeah. it's like it was stunning to lose him. You know, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, you know. And then, and of course, you know, he, he did it so that he could play with Antenna because they had a label and, right. and everything. And I understand that. And then Pat ended up joining that band. Um to uh to add insult to injury um but my and my only problem i mean i get making moves like that because it's a business and you're like you know this will get me on a label and blah blah blah. but it was just so heartbreaking to see those guys play that kind of music right you know it's like it's like seeing the ox and keith moon play with the monkeys right right it's like what you know he's up there doing you know two three note bass parts and pat's playing little straight beats i'm like anybody can do that yeah no no you know i mean you're heartbroken that they leave and they're on a label and and you want that but you also want them to be in the hives you know, yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah, you don't yeah. want them to be, you know, it's like, oh no, right? No. Uh, you know, so that was that was tough. But Brown Betty later on, we had a little tumble with them, which was fun. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anybody else has told that story. I know on Musical Family Tree, um, John Strom told uh, the story about us opening. Well, we were supposed to open for them at Jake's, and, um, and you know maybe we're getting ahead because we're getting into no, no. This is good. I it, it's okay. It's okay if it if it uh, all gets well, mixed up. Here's cause... how the story goes. I, I mean, as far as I know and everything, was um, they you know we were in Betty. Pat, yeah. I don't think Pat had seen us, or maybe he had, but. They were on tour promoting a record. They were on um, whatever that label was. Now I'm forgetting it again. But um, but they, you know, in Antenna, and there was big, our big, huge article in the newspaper about it. Yeah. And one of the stops was playing here in Bloomington, or what well, they are in Bloomington at Jake's. I think it was called the Mars Bar at that time, or something. Oh yeah, it was. It was Mars. Yeah, yeah. at Mars and. 
for some reason, Brown Betty got on that opening slot. Um, <laughs> now, we had Brown Betty had already played with the Afghan Whigs at Jake's, and I wouldn't say that I wiped my mouth of the blood <laughs> of the Afghan Whigs, but we did. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, but anyway. But Greg Dooley's a a, a a real dickhead, and he he got a sulk on, and he pulled a chair up and sat for most of the show. Um, he he came backstage when Betty was there, and asked us to leave the backstage, mm. and we were like, "What are you talking about? We're just having a soda, and we're about to go on in like five minutes." He's like, "What? Well, appreciate it if you'd leave." And really? We're like. Look, dude, I've played with Alex Chilton. I don't know what kind of <laughs> circle jerk you guys get up to before shows, but I've been around everything. You know, like, <laughs> I was like, I, I, I'm just sitting here five minutes, finish my soda, and then I'm going to go wipe the place with you. I'm going to ruin your soul. And and I'm like, really? You want to get me in a bad mood? You know? Oh, so, my God. Yeah, so we're like, yeah, let's leave the kettle to Lassie, you know? So we left. But anyway... So Brown Betty's going to open up for for Antenna. And Antenna's on tour. They've got an album, you know, out and everything. Mammoth. They were on Mammoth Records. They got a deal because um, the Blake Babies were on Mammoth. And Blake Babies broke up. They gave John, you know, uh, an opportunity to put records out. Right. Um, And um, so uh, immediately... People start coming up to me and are like, um, you know, uh, all of Steve Kowalski's going to be there. You know, yeah. Jake's going to be there and Pat's going to be there and you're going to be there. And they're like, uh, you know, is it going to be, you know, are you going to get in like a fight with John, Str- John Strom or something? Oh I was God. like, what? I was like, <laughs> John Strom didn't do anything. I mean, it's like. Uh, Those guys left to join some band who has a label. Everybody would do that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's not strange. I mean, that everybody does that. Um, the heartbreak is on my side because, you know, I love those guys and the way they played and what yeah. we had made. But I was like, no, you know, no. I was like, but um, it is going to be a little rough for them because... <laughs> because... Yeah. Brown Betty, uh, I don't know how many times you saw Brown Betty, but uh, probably forty. We were a fireball. Yeah. You know. Okay. And I was like, I was like, we're going to roast the earth. So yeah, the only the only other thing that happened with you know with the Steve Kowalski thing was we recorded an album with Paul Mayhern up there in Indianapolis, and we played at CBGBs, and um. We did some Canadian shows. We played with um, we played with uh, the um, with the uh, Destroy All Monsters that has the guys from the Stooges in it. Yeah, and um, it was really funny because I was talking about how we blew them away. They were bad. They weren't good. I mean, they weren't <laughs> like the Stooges. Right? They were really bad. And um, um they had this girl front person that just like sort of stood there and they were, they weren't good. And the fun thing, I think that whole show, it's at call the office. I think that whole show's on YouTube. Oh, right. on. Um, and, um, 
the guy who owned Call the Office, which is a club in London, Ontario, saw us at that pub, uh, at this one pub that I was talking about there. Yeah. And he was like, oh, my God, I love you guys. Is there any chance you can, um, you know, Destroy All Monsters is playing. I think they their name was Dark Carnival when we played with them. Okay. But it was, it was the same exact band. And he said, I'll kick the opening band off and have you guys open up for them. Um, and I was like, well, we're playing CBGBs tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, but I guess we can do it. Oh my you God. Know? So you you drove from New York to London, Ontario? Well, we were in London, Ontario, okay, okay. We were headed to New York. Okay. And um, so when we started, you know, the Stooges were, you know, were, you know, hard punk kind of. Right. and. And so they their following was like leather jacket type of people. We yeah. get up there in suits and ties and stuff. <laughs> and it was we did not have them right away. You know, yeah. I mean, it took a while. Um, but I love those those scenarios. Those are my yeah. favorite. Right. Um, playing, you know, playing scooter rallies or, you know, where you're knocking pins down that are tilted over already yeah. is one thing. But I like going into enemy territory mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, and just rocking. So it's like ACDC. Everybody loves ACDC. Punk rock people love ACDC. They're yeah. great. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They're like, it doesn't matter what kind of music you like. You like ACDC. Right. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. But um. But anyway, uh, so yeah, that show was really interesting because it it didn't start off. Um, you know the greatest um and then we won them over but anyway i was saying you know that we roasted them but i always say that um <laughs> it's just something i do you'll notice your poor viewers uh, will I, notice I, I, um, I, i've actually known that about you since uh indianapolis and in of course of course yeah, yeah yeah now i don't really talk shit that i can't back up i have to say in my own defense sure absolutely <laughs> i mean if if I didn't think I could do it, I wouldn't go around talking shit. But right. the um, but anyway, so the guys in the band were like, oh, you know, whatever, you know, you just think that. And then I went into the gas station, and there was a newspaper there, and there was this huge article in there about the show, really, and about how how shit those guys were and how great we are. Oh my god! And I came out and I threw the newspaper at them, and I go. I told you. That's <laughs> they, they were dying laughing. The article is insane. The stuff they say is so nice. Um, uh, like I know, I think they said something about cat trying to catch a picture of these guys on terra firma was next to impossible. Like he was like, you couldn't, you couldn't, if you had your fast shutter on, you couldn't catch them on the ground. You know, they're just oh, like just out of it. It was um, really funny. But anyway, I was halfway in that Betty story, but we don't have uh, the origin, Betty's origin story. Yeah, so let's do that. So I guess we have to go to that, and then we'll we'll rejoin. So, but, but real quick, does do Steve Kowalski and Brown Betty sort of overlap, or did Brown Betty start subsequent to... No, Steve Kowalski was dead. Okay. He was all the way dead. Okay. Jake, um, when Jake left... Um, Pat and I jammed around with um, a few other guys, um, including Brent Olds, who was in Poydog Pondering. Oh, um, he is? 
He was. Okay. Uh, he's a really good bass player. And he was in um he was in a band in Indianapolis. Oh, you you're in Indianapolis, so yeah. um Birdman of Alcatraz. Right, right. He 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 with uh, like, with that guy that was like a rapper. Yeah, uh Rusty Redenbacher is the Yeah, name. I couldn't yeah, remember yeah. his yeah, I I yeah. I, but I um Russell. Made contact with him not too long ago, right? Yeah. But yeah. anyway, he was in Birdman with Beppo from Toxic Reasons. Right. Yeah. And um, he, I don't remember how he got involved with with Kowalski, but he said, I'll play with you guys, but you have to do one ska song. You can choose it. Um, but you have to do one. And I'm like, okay. So we did Gangsters, which the specials made famous, but it's really a Prince Buster song. Um, right. And um, I was like, I, I love that song. That, that's no problem. But we had a funny with, with him because um, he was playing. A, he's really talented, but he, he he's like a funk player, you know? Right. Yeah. And I was like, you can't do that ever. You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to ever see that funk finger out. I, I love I love funk. I right. mean, I, you know. I was into funk and soul before I was into punk rock. Right. I mean, um, but I was like, it's not this kind of thing. And um, I, I hate to, you know, sidetrack a big talent of yours, but it doesn't really fit into our stuff. But anyway, we were playing with him and the guys in Birdman of Alcatraz gave him an ultimatum and said, you can't play with them anymore or you're out of the band. Really? Um, and I mean, it's not like we were on tour or anything. I mean, right. we played shows, and um, and Brent said, "Okay, well, I'm going to choose Steve Kowalski." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "What?" I, when he was telling me the story, I, I I I go, "Well, hey, Brent, I appreciate you know you playing with us, and thank you so much, and it was fun, you know." And he's like, "No, I chose you guys." I'm like. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I was like, yeah. So, but um, anyway, we played with a couple different guys. Another guy also. Pete. Pete, P Pete, yeah, Speedy Pete Hoffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got, Pete Hoffs got me hooked up with Ted Leo and them. Okay, um, all right. He, 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 yeah, he, he liked them um, when they were in Chisel. Yeah. Chisel was before Ted Leo's solo stuff with the, Ted Leo and the pharmacist. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, but Pat but Pat never got over got over Jake not being in the band. There was we could have gotten anybody. Bruce Foxton. Right. And it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been you know <laughs> you don't really come back from that you know. Right. And um so so then when the band was like totally done, this is the origin story of the Betty thing. The guys in Betty who were fans of. Steve Kowalski. They've been yeah. to sh several shows. They came up to me and asked to get in touch with Pat. Yeah. Because to get him to play with Brown Betty. Right. And I was like, oh, you know, he's on tour, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, with Jake, you know, and um, and that damn John Strom. Yeah. Uh, you know, I and um and so um they 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 really wanted him and they yeah. were always after me 
Pat wasn't around. They were always after me to get in touch with a Pat. And I kept telling him, no, he's not around. He's not around. He's on tour, blah, blah, blah. Um, we were living, Pat, we, Pat and I were living in the same house at that time. And I said, finally said, hey, I know that the, um, that with college towns and everything, there's, you know, it cycles, people cycle out. They're down there, you know, but I played drums in bands before I was in Steve Kowalski. You probably don't know because you probably weren't around. You hadn't cycled in yet. Right. And um, unless you're a townie or whatever. And um, I said, yeah, I, you know, I played drums for a long time, showed Pat tons of stuff. And um, I was like, I can, you know, if you just need somebody to play on some demos or whatever, I can do it, you know. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I don't know these guys from Adam other than that they, you know, saw some shows right. of Kowalski. Um, but I don't know anything about him. I thought it was going to be some shit blues jam thing, you know. <laughs> and um, and when I go in there, we were in some basement at a, and um, they start playing this this stuff. And I'm like, you wrote that? And they're like, you know, like it's the stuff off the first album. You know, it's like Fish Market Blues, yeah. and Bone Meal, and Pocket. And and I'm like, I just kept saying, do you have anything else? And he's like, yeah. And he plays another time. I'm like, do you have anything else? And he just keeps pouring all this stuff out. And I'm like, you've got to be shitting me. <laughs> I mean, he is so good. Bill yeah. was so, is so talented. I love his voice. He has yeah. a great voice. His lyrics are amazing. The yeah. songs are amazing. Uh, that never happens right. where you just roll into these strangers. I wasn't even planning on being a band with them. They right. wanted that, you know? Yeah, I was yeah. Like, um, I was like, oh, you know, I'll suffer through this. It'll be terrible. Um, <laughs> and I'll leave. And it'll be no big deal, you know? Right. And, um, and I was just like, flabbergasted I, I asked for a pen and paper and I'm writing all these song titles down and I swear to God it's eight or nine of the songs off the first album yeah uh, and a couple that a couple that we didn't record but we played live and everything and I always say this and it's it's totally true and it never happens we could have played out that night I mean it was wrong I mean, those guys obviously had a bond. They had been in a yeah. band for Blue Coat Chip Jones. Right. And um, they ha had obviously worked out these songs, but it sounded so good. We could have played that night. Oh, uh, I mean, it was wrong. Um, and I, yeah, I was really impressed because for me to move back on drums, the guy on guitar that writes the songs and sings has to be really good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like I can't do that, you know? Right. So I was like, I was blown away. And um, with him, uh, I don't say this about my own stuff. I never had any misgivings that I was writing hits, you know? Right. I was like, I never thought like, wow, she's lost her luster, should be on the radio, you know? Yeah. It's like, I, I don't, I, I like my kind of music and, and there's a place for it and everything, but they're not hits brown betty stuff were hits i mean they yeah. were like i was like this is ridiculous you know i was like if 
if we can't make a go of this, I mean, right? It was, it was obviously we didn't, but um, well, I mean, we made a record and we played CBGBs also. Yeah, and you were and, the the cassette tape you guys had that I think is officially called Bumper Rumpa Rama. Right. The right? the album Thriller yeah. is two EPs put together. And their Bumper Rumparama, which was six songs, and Yelpin' for a Second Helpin' was six more songs. And all of those 12 songs make up Thriller. Okay. But we re-recorded Thriller with a guy who worked at Prince's studio. Yeah. That that um, cassette, the Bumper Rumparama cassette. Is great. I, well, and I had a copy of it for years until I wore it out. And I think it was like stuck in my tape deck of my of my truck yeah it was early. mike mike stucker recorded it i think at the mac and i mean i've i've had all different kinds of recording situations yeah. i've paid a bunch and had it sound like shit i've paid very little and had it sound great yeah. um i've had you know this and that and i've had mac sessions that sounded amazing mm-hmm. um i i worked at uh, columbia university recently as the recording talent and i did um all the songs all the instruments myself and sang and everything yeah and um i did a hundred and like 15 songs with them wow uh, for money yeah uh, yeah it was crazy so That's i've recorded awesome. a, a, a lot over the years yeah um and um and uh Oh, but anyway, yeah. When I came when I came back from the Mac, from with the first half of Thriller, which was Bumper Umperama, yeah, I put in the cassette deck. And I was like, oh my goodness, yeah, um, yeah. I it sounded so good, and that's partially because Mike Stucker's a, a good engineer and he had some good equipment. But I think the majority of it is that Bill is really incredibly talented and wrote great songs and sang them great, yeah. you know? I, um, I, I used to make people copies of that cassette. So, like, it like friends from all across the country have copies of Bumper Umperama. Yeah, I, I, I was so impressed with, with them, and, and I thought I thought he was is, is so talented, and he can play everything i always tell this story we were in a studio somewhere or another and he sat down at a piano there was a grand piano there and he just starts playing like as a joke like it sounded like a classical uh you know like somebody playing (laughs) you know at like a concert hall and he's just like laughing, like, oh yeah, this is goofy. And he's like, you know, like doing all this stuff. I'm like, oh my God. Wow. Also, when he would play, he could outplay anybody in heavy metal lead guitar playing other yeah. than Eddie Van Halen. But, right. and he thought it was funny. It was a joke, <laughs> you know, it was like he'd hit his rat pedal through that goofy, um, stereo chorus amp that rolling jazz chorus i have no idea how he got a decent sound out of that thing and he would shred anybody to death (laughs) and he thought it was funny you know he's like oh this is stupid i'm just i you know he'd pull his shorts up real high and you know 
take his shirt off or whatever, and then destroy every guitar player that's yeah. ever come through Indiana. You know, it's like so funny. I but feel anyway, like. Go ahead. No, all, all I was gonna say was just that. Um, yeah, he's he's a stunner, and we, you know, he made those uh, those couple cassettes, and then we re-recorded them in the studio um, in Bloomington there, but we brought in a producer that worked at Paisley Park with Prince. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and made Thriller, and uh, the drummer from Arson Garden paid for it. Really? Yep. <laughs> I told you, the Arson Garden thing's all over us. We can't yeah. get away from it. That's, um, wow. Yeah, he, he was a big Betty fan, and he was wealthy, and he asked if he could just pay to have us record it and then we would shop it to labels uh, because he said purely just for selfish reasons, I just want to get a great version of those songs. Do you, and do you think those were good versions of those songs? Did you, were you happy I, with them? I, I do, I do for the most part. I, I do like them. Um, I do think that there is um, some sort of character on the cassette ones that um, you can't really duplicate. Right. Um, and that's what that's called uh, demophobia or something. <laughs> it's, it's where you have a demo of the of a song and then when you go in to record it, you're so used to the demo that you end up trying to remake the demo. Oh, yeah. As a, as a listener, I I, as a listener, I could, I loved the Thriller album, but I could never get used. To, like I had the the versions of the songs from the cassettes right. in my head, and could never quite like. There was there was like a. Mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah, the the cassette when I would listen to it, it was like I was transported to a show. Right, um, and yeah, that's true. It captured something. Yeah, and that's pretty hard. That the other thing that never happens that happened with Betty when we made that tape, we played a show at a record store in Bloomington, and the first EP, and I had a box of them. I don't remember how many, maybe twenty five or something, and they, the, everybody bought them. They were all gone. I was there. It was at Streetside Records. Right. That show is on video, and it's a really good show. So, also at that show, when you were throw, when you were um, selling those, you kept referring to the tape as "Smell the Glove." Smell uh, the glove. Yeah, you, you. Smell the glove is here. But, but that's the first time I've ever had like you know. I'm always like you know. We have records and we have T-shirts. You know this or that, and you know a couple people buy them. Nobody's yeah. ever bought every one of them out of my right. hand. Right. It's like, but they were just throwing it at me. We never called it Bumper Rama. You called it Smell the Glove? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that's funny. <laughs> and I was like years later, like 20 years later, I was um, talking to somebody else who was a Brown Betty fan and that knew Jim Robinson. And I was like, yeah, I, can you help me get a copy of Smell the Glove? And they're like, <laughs> what, what's Smell the Glove? I'm like, that, that cassette. And they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. There is no Brown Betty recording called Smell the Glove. Oh I'm my like, God, yes. that is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if I, I, I think that, 
there's some archive that has digitized versions. Yeah, those are. I think they're on Musical Family Tree. Yeah, and Jim also sent me a link to another archive that has them. Because uh, Mike, because Mike Stucker is involved with Musical Family Tree. I think. I think he even you know had a way of getting them. Um, but yeah, I I understand that. I mean, I like I like the album the way it is and everything, but. Sometimes that happens that there's some sort of character on on the recordings um, that uh, that you know that you just can't capture again. It also, I think, I think over a year had passed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and we had played the songs a million times. Um, by the time we got into the studio to record Thriller, we could we had a whole nother album's worth of stuff. That we didn't, we had to go back and make the first album, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so you know, maybe they were fresher, you know, then, and we were excited. Um, but I was excited as hell. I threw that cassette on at places, and every time it sounded great. Yeah, um, and so I was good. just like, and it's not always like that, you know. If you're in bands, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I would throw that into people's jam boxes and and. It sounded great, uh, um, and so good. Um, but yeah, so so with so with Betty, um, we did we did get hot in um, in Chicago. There, I moved up to Chicago, and then Bill and Jim joined me up there in Chicago, and um, we had a few lucky incidences. We played with the Flaming Lips, you know, so yeah, um, at the Metro. And um, after that, uh, off of that show, we hosted JBTV and played on JBTV Live um, because of that show. And um, we had a, a, was it Ben Kim from a newspaper, um, a guy that was semi-managing us up there, um, sent a... A tape to this to this guy Ben Kim and said you should come see these guys you know they they rock and we played at this little hole called the crypt um, in the middle of nowhere in Chicago and there was about 10 people there and Ben Kim came and flipped out he was like oh my god you guys are so great and he wrote us up all the time in the newspaper he, we were in a top 10 best shows of the year. Oh, my God. Um, and it was that Crypt show. It wasn't even the Metro show with the Flaming Lips or anything like that. I was like, oh, my God, there was 15 people at that show. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was like, it, I think we were number seven. The Pumpkins were number one. Um, but I was laughing about number eight, nine, and ten. They were behind us. I think Cowboy Junkies was one of them. I was like, "You got beat by some band that played the Crypt for 15 people." But uh, but anyway, but uh, yeah, I mean, Veruca Salt played three shows and signed to Geffen. So right, yeah, it's like you never know what's gonna happen. But one of the most amazing things about seeing Brown Betty live was the chemistry that you all had on stage and the way that you always made the audience feel like a part of the show there's like I, I and i was listening to some of the live stuff on musical family tree 
Oh, that's and, great. And the rapport. Those second story shows were amazing. The rapport that you that you had with each other on stage, but then you also had the rapport with the crowd and always made it feel like the crowd was a part of the performance as well. I yeah, yeah. I don't, um, I don't have, I, I never really ever had any hangups of like thinking, you know, being up my own ass, you know, mm -hmm. about like, you know, I'm going to end up being a rock star. <laughs> I mean, right. Uh, even, I mean, only like when I, like really early on, you know, you start playing some shows and you maybe play with some famous people and, you know, some people tell you you're good or whatever, and you can sort of get up your own ass a little bit. But I I didn't have it for for very long at all. And so I just love doing it. I have so much fun doing it. Um, I never cared about the money or if the people, if there was a ton of people there or not. I love the songs. I love those guys in the band. I, I'm so honored to play with people that are that good. Um, and so I just always have a big, a, a big fucking ball. That's, I'm just having the greatest time. And um, I, so I don't have any, I don't really have any ego. Um, I mean, I know what I can do and, you know, when I'm in a good band and, um, and that even the challenges and stuff isn't really ego. It's like, it's like trash talking in sports. Right. You know? Yeah. I played basketball all over the world. <laughs> um, I took in with Brown Betty. I don't, you know, I don't drink or anything. So um, when we would drive around to play these shows, I would take my basketball. I would go play basketball all, <laughs> all over. Um, and because I don't go to the bar and drink until we play, you know. Right. Um, so. Um, yeah, I, I took my basketball stuff and played all over all over the country. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, but um, so it's more of a sports thing. It's not an ego thing. Like I said, I've been in b plenty of bands that I don't talk shit to the other people if I can't back it up. You know, right. yeah. I was in I was in Fondly. We were on Mercury. We were on yeah. a major. Um, but we were an art rock band. I didn't walk around talking shit, about, you know, with Fondly, you know, I was like, I didn't go up to, you know, like, you know, we were on Smashing Pumpkins record label. And I was like, I didn't go up to, you know, these bands that we played with and, you know, talk shit. Um, so it's not an ego thing, but that's uh, with the audience. I just, I just have a ball and that's, um, and I, I just love being there doing it so much. I don't, like I said, I don't have any ego thing about it. I don't care about the money because um, uh, I'm fantastically independently wealthy. No, um, <laughs> I've, just, I've just never had a need for money. Only rich people say that. Right. Um, I, 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 but I don't, I don't, I, that, that doesn't wrap me up. And I don't let, I don't let bad stuff ruin my good time at a show there's an art to that mm -hmm. um, because things happen and you know you know stuff like that but you can't let you can't let it get in the way of your of your getting having a good time because you only have 45 minutes and then you're back in the van to drive for 10 hours you know right. so um yeah i always i always play like i'm never gonna play again and that'll happen <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know um so 
Yeah, I, I, I love it. I loved although those shows at Second Story that are on that are million of them are on Musical Family Tree. They're all golden moment, you know, just uh, so much fun and tons of energy. And the people that came to the shows were awesome. And yeah, we had a we had a great a great uh, bunch of people there. The, but that's yeah, that's my thing with with all audiences. You know, but somebody could make a a uh, collection of just your uh, your banter mm. with with the with the crowd, and 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 I could listen to it for forever. Oh, that's that's funny. Yeah, Bill and Jim have have talked to me about talking too much at shows. Oh before. no! I no. always said, yeah, I always said, um, I don't have switches. This is another basketball thing. I don't have different switches on me and my playing. I am what I am, you yeah. know. I've been playing for 40 years, you know. Right. Um, and uh, when I play basketball, if it's an old man and three little girls, I yep. play like I'm playing at <laughs> the most dangerous court in Chicago um, <laughs> where there's gunplay, and I've, I've played those places. Um I only have one switch, and that's the way I am with shows. I don't switch it off if there's ten people there, like right. at the crypt. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I just am having so much fun. Um, I, you know, I love to look out and see four hundred people, or you know, a hundred, you know, a thousand people, or whatever. Yeah. But um, and that's great. But I, I have a ball. I mean, I have a ball when there's. 20 and um yeah. those second story shows were golden you know uh, um uh, they were they were amazing because the songs were great and and those guys are you know s such a blast to play with we were so funny with jim because we always talked down to jim for not being a virtuoso on bass jim's great on bass yeah yeah he's fantastic <laughs> he's he's great on bass um yeah. But Bill, you know, Bill is so incredible, and I love myself. Um, and, uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty obvious. I mean, that's pretty obvious already. Um, but but it, it, that was like a, a running joke. You know, we'd always you know be like you know showing him stuff and things like that. And he's great. He's yeah. great. Yeah. He's a great player. Obviously, he's still playing and everything. Let's get back to the Jake's the Jake's story. Yeah. With um, so here's what happens. Okay, so we're gonna play with with Antenna at Jake's, mm -hmm. and all these people are coming up to me, going, "Oh my God, it's gonna be a showdown!" and all this stuff. And you know, Betty's gonna you know coming after him. And I was like, um, "That's cute of you to say, but it's not gonna be even a competition." <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like if you grab like a you know like a preschooler and put Jordan or Barkley, you know, <laughs> like and made him play one on one or something. Yeah. And and I, you know that's I say that stuff. You know that. Yeah. And uh, and so then I guess John Strom caught wind of this or whatever, and so he told Pat they were going to switch the running order. And have us play last as a punishment. Oh my god! And and I was like, wait a minute. Now Brown Betty's gonna headline your show. How does? How is that a punishment? I was like, 
I know you guys have been in bands a long time. I know John Strom was in the Lemonheads, and he's yeah. he's played with a lot of people. He was in the Blake Babies. They were famous. You know, I'm like, you know, making us headline is not going to be a punishment. <laughs> so did and you? I was like, did you so advertise that, the show as headliners? And no, oh, oh. no, but they <laughs> so they assumed like everybody was coming to see them. You know, yeah. they have, they're on tour and it's a record. It's their show. It's their show. Right. And um, and. So they assumed after they played, everybody would leave right. or something. Yeah. It was only us and them. It wasn't a festival. It wasn't like we were in the middle of a festival and they switched us up in order or whatever. Um, and um, so nobody, you know, half the people weren't there yet for their show. And they get up there and they play before us. And, you know... And then they're, you know, everybody's like, what are they doing? You know, why, why are they playing now? Half the people weren't even there. There was nobody on the floor. Nobody was up against the stage or anything. Yeah. They were just like, are, these guys are playing now. And, um, and then when they're done, it's like, now it's like, uh, whatever it is, um, 10, 30, 11 or something. Yeah. And now everybody is in, they've all filled in. And Brown Betty is Brown Betty. I mean, <laughs> and we come at him. Now I'm pissed, you know? Yeah. I'm not pissed because they gave us the headlining spot. That's ridiculous. Right. But, but I also, you know, they're on a label and these are my ex-bandmates and I want to crush them, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, now, and there's, you know, there's the master and the student thing with me and Pat. Yeah. And, and, um, and so... We just rip roars, and everybody was just like, "Oh my god!" And then Matt was like really dazed, and he left the show with half of his drums at the club and left on tour because oh he was just shell shocked um, from the fury. <laughs> but that's my version. Or we both played and it was fun. Uh, you know, I, I, I like your version. Yeah, um, I. I've never been one of those people that like goes around and fluffs up other bands because they're networking or something. Right. When I love a band, I love them and they know it. And I go like Chibadawa or, yeah. you know, Pitbulls yeah. on Crack and, you know, these kinds of bands. I adore them, you know. Yeah. So. I could listen to you talk and tell stories forever. Um, you just, your podcast should just be maybe a month long. Like, <laughs> The, it'll we'll just do a 10-part series with right the chronicles yeah it um, couldn't be captured in one hour actually i'm i'm all for it but um do you have any projects that you're working on right now that you want to uh plug or that you want me to uh, yeah make sure not people... not really i'm uh i'm on a down on a down uh thing from covid and um and all this i you know i had mega super ultra was a band Yep. that I that was like Steve Kowalski not as good um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because we didn't have Jake and Pat but, right. um, but we did play in London and we you know put out a few records and um, and so that was around and then I was playing drums with a with a guy called Wes Hollywood and uh, from Chicago and we had a we had a few albums out um, so that's what I've been doing um more recently and 
also doing all the recording at Columbia. Right. Can people find any of that stuff online, though, if they want to? I mean, the West Hollywood stuff, obviously, uh, yeah. and um, and Mega Super Ultra. The hundred and you know hundred or so songs that I did at Columbia, I have not published them. They're grouped in album titles. Yeah. Um, that was another thing I was going to say about um, when we came up with Thriller. We had a bunch of great band uh, album titles that didn't happen. And one was Jiggling the Handle of Rock. One was Tears of a Clone. Um, um, one was um, Heavy Petting Zoo. Um, and uh, we wanted a, yeah, yeah, that just, I know, I know Bill had a, we had a list of them. And they were all just hilarious. Uh, well, well, you uh, guys were hilarious. So I permission I, to I, rock, granted, <laughs> was another. <laughs> uh, that was another one. And but we were afraid uh, bad reviewers would say permission to rock denied. <laughs> there wouldn't have been any bad so reviews. Instead, we named it after the most famous record of all time, which I think was perfect. Yeah, um, when I went to the lawyer for the label for that, it yeah. was hilarious. <laughs> Because uh, okay. I was like, can you copyright an album title? And oh we want to name it, uh, we want to name it Thriller. And yeah. they were like, good idea. Great <laughs> idea. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and that's why I'm rich and famous. That, that Exactly. Hey, thank you for thank being you. on the podcast. I, if, if, would you ever be willing to do a part two? If, uh, oh, of course. All right. Tomorrow. Well, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, anytime, sure. All right, well, thank you. Uh, this has been amazing. I could listen to you tell stories forever. So awesome. I appreciate it. I'll let you know when it comes out, and we'll, I'll get you a copy of it. Okay, thank you so much. All right, take care, Tom. All right, bye-bye. Jake, you can get in here. Jake, you can get in here.
And that was my interview with Tom Schover. I had a blast listening to him tell stories. I love the way that he talks about his bands. I love the way that he talks about the bands that he worked with and that he played with. I love hearing his stories. I could listen to him for hours. You've been listening to Down in Bloomington. Down in Bloomington is produced by me, Mike Emmett. I love being able to talk to all of these people who have these connections to Bloomington's musical history. I hope you enjoy listening to them. If you do enjoy listening to them, please tell your friends. Please tell the people you know that were part of the scene back in the day. Let them know that they can hear these stories, and if they want to contact me, they can do so through the information on my podcast page. I would love to hear ideas for what they want to hear, who they want me to track down and talk to. This has been a labor of love, and I enjoy doing it. I don't get to do it as often as I used to, but whenever I get the chance, I'm going to talk to folks and hear their stories. I hope you enjoy them. I'll come back in a month or two with another episode, and until then, I hope that you keep telling your stories and listening to the music that you love. I should have a creative tagline here, but I don't.